wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. He never put out many decorations when Halloween came around. Certainly never as many as the other families on the block. No, no orange garbage bags filled with leaves and with jack-o'-lantern faces painted on. No battery-powered witches that cackled as you walked up to the front door. No rubber bats, rubber cats, or rubber rats. But despite that, every year all the kids in the neighborhood would make sure to visit his house and receive the perfectly mediocre candy that he handed out. All because of the skeleton, the only decoration his house ever needed. The skeleton was an institution. Without fail, it would be sitting out on his front porch starting a week before Halloween until not one minute after midnight on November the 1st, the whole while leaning back in its red and white lawn chair, surveying the streets in reclined majesty. Nobody could remember a Halloween when the skeleton wasn't there. Not the children who had always known it, including the very young ones, who were still afraid of it but couldn't help peeking at it from behind their parents' legs. Not the teenagers, who no longer went out trick-or-treating, but thought fondly of it in the moments they wished they still did. Strangely, not even the adults could recall a year it wasn't looming from behind the painted wood railing on the porch. Such was its place in their minds. Yet, as ageless as the skeleton seemed in their memories, it wasn't as such in reality. What was probably once bleached white bone slowly began to yellow and brown, year by year. Discoloration of the plastic, thought those who think of such things. The people of the area, even the rowdy preteens, knew never to touch or disturb the skeleton, but even still the wear of the years took their toll. In recent years, the man could be seen making small, emergency repairs on the skeleton in the week before Halloween. He'd use carpenter's glue to reaffix teeth that had fallen out, and small carpal bones that had been knocked loose. Nobody was ever quite sure why the manufacturer of the skeleton had decided to make it with so many moving parts. It was beginning to look like the skeleton was going to be retired any year soon, and that the neighborhood would have to make do with garbage bag pumpkins, plastic rats, and shoppers' drug mart witches and their deep-pitched shrieks. The man was telling one couple just as much one chilly Halloween evening, when their young daughter, a small thing of six in a tutu and a windbreaker, chimed in. "'Why don't you just get another skeleton?' she asked. "'Well,' said the man, "'I can't. It's very unique, and there are no others like it.' She looked puzzled, as did her parents. Waving his hands and trying to clear the confusion, he said, "'What I mean is that they just don't make them anymore.' "'Well,' said the girl, "'it doesn't have to be the exact same skeleton.' He didn't respond to this right away. 
His pupils slid up to the top right corner of his eyes, and he pondered. No, I don't suppose it has to be. And so the next year, the morning of the day of the week before Halloween, every person on their way to school or work, or those just out walking the dog, stopped and gawked and murmured as the man put out a new, bleached white, pristine-looking skeleton. The children squealed with excitement, the teenagers smirked, and the adults smiled softly, knowing that an institution was being preserved. A week later, on Halloween night, the same young girl, now seven and a robot, smiled widely as the man opened his front door with a handful of Jolly Ranchers. You got a new skeleton, she exclaimed. He smiled. I sure did. Was it easy to find? His smile, in a way just barely noticeable to the human eye, took on an element of wryness, and he gave a little wink. Oh, yes, much easier than I expected. Looking at him smile, she felt slightly strange. She turned to face the new, clean skeleton, and felt as though she'd helped somebody do a bad thing. But, not wanting to spoil the moment, she turned back, and she smiled too. Sitting on the steps of the farmhouse were a series of what looked like deformed, disembodied baby heads. Their skin was a glossy, raspy beige. Noseless, their eyes were featureless ovals, and their mouths the same shape, though filled with wide-spaced, nubbin teeth. What are they? Kelsey asked. Mrs. Ash looked in surprise at the new au pair. Haven't you ever seen a jack-o'-lantern before, she said. Never one like that, said Kelsey. Aren't they supposed to be pumpkins? Mrs. Ash laughed and shook her head. No, Kelsey, she said. Pumpkins come from the New World. People have only used them for one or two hundred years. This is how Jack with a Lantern is supposed to look. Carved out of a rutabaga or mangleversal and lit with a beef tallow candle. Kelsey didn't ask if they gave the trick-or-treaters raisins, too. She needed the job. Ah, she said, that's fun. Oh my, no said Mrs. Ash. Pumpkins are much more fun in my books. But traditionally, the lantern's not supposed to be fun. It's supposed to scare away evil. Kelsey smiled. Expecting a lot of evil this Halloween, she said. But Mrs. Ash didn't smile. She looked out over the moors with a grey light in her eyes. Oh, this far out in the country, you can't be too careful, she said. Especially not at All Hallows, when the worlds all come so close together. It was a strange conversation for the Canadian girl to have had on her first day, but she put it out of her mind, and come that evening, when the kids were down and Mrs. Ash had gone to sleep, and Kelsey sitting alone on the front steps, she had forgotten it. Ahead of her, the moors spread out dark for a long, long way. A distant line of light marked the highway, with nothing beyond it. Closer at hand, all she could hear was the October wind in the high grass, and the low, guttering sound of tallow candles in the jack-o'-lanterns. Something came out of the darkness along the garden path, bringing a smell like the dumpster behind a butcher shop. Kelsey caught her breath, frozen solid. It was taller than a man, but thin and coiling, and moved with a drifting, shadowy motion up the path. It came to the edge of the circle of light cast by the lanterns. A whimper died in Kelsey's throat. She recognized the half-shadowed face on its small, distorted head. 
The thing bent over and took one of the lanterns in both its long and many-fingered hands. Flickering light shone from the lantern's eyes and mouth, revealing a twin set of eyes, a mirror image of its oval mouth and separated stubby teeth. "'Oh!' groaned the thing, staring into the lantern. "'Oh, truly, is that how I look? Is that how I look? I'm hideous!' it said. "'I'm hideous! I cannot stand to see my face!' It cast down the turnip lantern, which bounced, but did not go out. With a high-pitched wail, the thing turned and bounded into the darkness, gibbering as it vanished from sight. Slowly, catching her breath, Kelsey descended the steps and put the turnip lantern back upright. Later in life, when she'd returned to Vancouver, her home would stand out from all the others on the block. Alone of them all, it would have a hideous, deformed jack-o'-lantern made from a root vegetable and lit with a beef tallow candle. Their kids were in bed, and Eric could feel the dread sitting heavily in his chest as he considered what would come next. The bags full of hard-earned treats lay bulging on the coffee table, cornucopias filled with caramels, hard candy, and chocolate. His wife, Mary, sat cross-legged in front of the sacks, studying them like a chessboard. Eric lacked his wife's courage. He hadn't even looked at the bags since they arrived home. Instead, he was cleaning up the dinner dishes, abandoned in the sink when their three children insisted on leaving for fear that they would miss out on trick-or-treating but he knew it was only a matter of time before he and his wife faced the inevitable. I was really careful this year, said Eric. I checked the candy as they handed it out. Mary looked over hopefully, but then her shoulders sagged. No, we're always careful and it doesn't matter. We have to check, she said. It came out flat. She was resigned to the task. We can't leave them for the kids to find. Eric sighed and scraped some chicken parts into the compost. Maybe this year would be different. After all, it couldn't happen every year forever. Leaning slightly to the side, he stole a glance at the coffee table before quickly looking away again. His spine tingled. He'd had the impression that the bags were staring at him. Eric's hands shook and he lost his grip on the plate, which shattered in the sink. Why does this keep happening? Who keeps doing this to us, he said. I asked everyone on the street and nobody else, not one of them, has to deal with this... with this... He couldn't finish. Mary stood and walked over to him. She took his hand. Come on, she said. Together. They sat on opposite ends of the coffee table. Mary took Laura's bag of candy, their eldest, leaving Eric to choose between Oscar's and Hannah's. Eric mentally flipped a coin and took Oscar's bag. Hannah's would be last. For the next hour, Mary and Eric carefully checked wrappers, ran their fingers along the silver inside of orange and black tinfoil, even cracked open the cheap, hollow gumballs. With each piece of candy that was normal, Eric felt his hopes rise. Stupid, he thought. It's always last. But he couldn't help himself from wishing. When they'd finished and made sure every piece of candy was accounted for, Mary took the empty bags and shook them out. Eric's heart sank. Just like last year, just like the year before that, just like every year since their children started trick-or-treating, three folded pieces of white paper fell from the bags, one from each. They sat insolently on the table, marking out the vertices of a non-existent triangle, and waited. Numbly, Eric considered how ordinary they looked. They could be notes passed in class, a crumpled receipt at the bottom of a shopping bag. They could be anything, 
and yet they were always the same horrible thing. Mary looked at him with bloodshot eyes, and Eric realized that she'd been putting on a brave face, not for the kids, but for him. He felt his spine straighten against his will. I'll do it, said Eric, snatching up the papers before Mary could reach for them. He unfolded the first slip, gritting his teeth as he saw the familiar, looping cursive, handwritten in dark blue ink. He briefly considered throwing the others away, but he knew from past Halloweens that the papers would just find their way back inside somehow, unless they were read in full. So instead, he flattened them on the table and began to read. On each slip, someone had written a date, followed by a dash, followed by a second future date. The first dates were impossible to forget. What parent forgets their children's birthdays? But the second dates. They loomed large as oak trees. It didn't matter that those days were years, decades away. It didn't matter if the intervening years were filled with happiness, success, and satisfaction. The time left would always be too short, and it was getting shorter every year. Eric had spent hours preparing for this moment. He could have spent weeks with the same result. The reminder was too much, as it always was, and he felt a small and fragile thing break inside his heart. Eric swept the papers into the fireplace and lit a log. Mary held him close as the blaze flickered to life, but he couldn't seem to get warm. By midnight, the keg was dead, and two first years dressed as vampires were puking raspberry sourpuss into the common room garbage can. It was pretty clear the party was over, so the group of us went up to Dan Trong's room in Third Wit to see this unique liqueur he'd been bragging about since initiations week. The room smelled, so I sat on the sill of the open window, though I had to move a couple steins of last month's Molson X to do it. Cigarette butts floated in the beer like tiny Pacific garbage patches. Gross. Everyone ready? Dan said. Like an orthodox priest with an icon, he paraded around the room with a bottle wrapped in brown, grimy cloth. Resigned, we all held out our mugs and solo cups. With a flourish, he whipped off the cloth. We all recoiled. The liquid was thick and green, like water from a pond with a bad algae problem. Where did you get that, said Jen Hastings. Dan smiled, spreading his fingers. Europe, he said. What part of Europe? He smiled again. Something floated indistinctly in the bottom of the bottle, nudging against the glass as Dan gestured. The east part, he said. Okay, said Jen. Is it safe? He checked the one legible corner of the bottle's small smudged label. It's 68% ABV is what it is, he said. We all looked at each other. Collectively, we shrugged, holding out our cups again. The liquor oozed out of the bottle, smelling like rubbing alcohol mixed with gasoline. It's like one of those fancy tequilas, said Dan. It's got a worm on the bottom. Last person to finish their drink has to eat it. Ew, said Jen. Vic Matthews snorted. Don't be a baby, she said, slamming her solo cup as though it was filled with beer. Woo! She held out her cup to Dan. Top me up, you dink. We all followed her lead. Vic would be elected head of college the next year. I guess this is what people meant when they talked about student leadership. The liquor tasted like corn syrup, black tar, and I want to say tarragon? Actually, it wasn't so bad once you got over it. Forty minutes later, we were wasted and the bottle was almost empty. I told you, said Dan Trong, so drunk that he was drooling. I told you this stuff was great. He shook the bottle. A shadow swirled through the dregs. One drink left till we see the worm, he said. Who wants it? Vic held out her cup. Yo, she said. 
Dan poured her the drink and she crushed it, falling backwards as she did. Unconscious, she hit the floor, somehow already in the recovery position. I laughed. How does she do that, I said. But nobody else laughed with me. Disappointed, I turned to find them all staring at the bottle. It was now empty, except for the shadow at the bottom. I leaned in close. My jaw dropped. It was a worm after all. And it was furious. Bright green and two inches long, its plated body thudded against the glass as it thrashed among the dregs. Jen screamed, and someone else, I think it was Jess Oduo, threw up in the garbage can. Oh, said Dan. And then he said, Oh. I looked closer. I saw what he'd seen. The grub was still covered in that green liquor, but when I brought my eye to its level, wincing as it tried to sting me through the glass, I saw that the liquor wasn't sticking to the grub's plates, it was seeping through them. I stood back. It sprayed viscous drops against the glass where my eye had been. We all stood in silence, watching it lactate and spew the same fluid we'd been drinking seconds earlier. That's my last memory of that night. I spent four days hungover, and when I ran into Dan in the calf, neither of us mentioned anything but essays and readings until he got up to leave for class. He hesitated as he turned away. Hey, he said, not meeting my eye. The bottle's already full again. Devil's Night hadn't been fun since the year Marco's mother died. When they'd been twelve and thirteen, it had been the best. They'd streaked through the town on their bicycles, wearing all black, with scream masks over their faces, even though they'd been born after the movie came out and didn't get the reference. Every year, their first target would always be Mr. Ryland's house. Ryland was the math teacher at their middle school. He failed kids all the time and took pleasure in it. Once, he'd made Samantha Mulattis cry in class and had laughed in her face. The boys decided at the end of grade seven that he deserved to have his house egged once a year. It had seemed right and fun, then. But then Marco's mom died, and his dad got custody back east. Six months later, when the courts brought Marco back to stay with his grandparents in the city, Marco had changed. Maybe he'd always been a bit of a bully, but now he was mean. He'd hurt kids over imagined slights, and when Samantha Mulattis wouldn't go to the fall dance with him, he'd screamed at her in the halls until the teachers dragged him away. That October, instead of eggs, he brought rocks to Devil's Night. I don't know, Marco, said Tony Figuera. It seems like too much. What, are you scared? said Marco. Afraid of getting in trouble? No, said Tony. It's just that, you know, rocks. It seems too much. Isn't it too much? He looked around, but Mitchell Sedlak and Kevin Moon both had their eyes downcast. They wouldn't meet his gaze, or Marco's. See, said Marco. They're fine with it. Now sack up. They threw the rocks at Mr. Ryland's house. Four windows broke. At school, rumors went around that it had cost him over a thousand dollars to get them replaced. Mr. Ryland stopped taking the bus to school and now walked the 55 minutes. That year, Marco got worse. He was suspended three times for getting in fights. The police were involved the third time because Marco had put the kid in the hospital. Ryland spoke to the police. The kid needs help, he'd said. Putting him in juvie will only make it worse. But charges were pressed, and Marco blamed Ryland, since Ryland had been the one who caught him in the act of throwing Dimitri Papadou down the hill. Marco spent the summer away. When he came back in the fall, people tried not to know him anymore. Mitchell, Tony, and Kevin didn't see a lot of him that fall. 
He didn't spend a lot of time in class. He caught up with them one day after Thanksgiving, when they were walking across the parking lot, and the dry orange leaves were whispering underfoot. Hey, he said, we doing Devil's Night this year? The other three looked at each other. I was kind of thinking, Tony started. He trailed off. Oh, I get it, said Marco. You guys don't like me anymore. That's fine. No, Marco, said Tony. It's not like that. I said it's fine, said Marco, half turning away. No, really, man, said Kevin, catching him. We're still your friends. We'll do Devil's Night. And that's how they ended up with him outside Ryland's house the night before Halloween, dressed in all black. Come on, said Marco, flicking the kickstand of his bike. He had a black duffel bag slung over his shoulder. Where are you going, said Tony. Marco tossed him something. A spray paint can. We're going to tag his house, said Marco, hopping the front lawn's low hedge. Come on, Marco, said Mitchell. Can't we just egg his place like normal? Marco stopped. Underneath his scream mask, they couldn't make out his expression, but he was standing with his fists balled and his chest heaving. As one, the other three realized how much time Marco had been spending at the gym that year. All three felt a cold trickle of sweat at the base of their spines. He put me away, said Marco. Three months of my life gone just because fucking Ryland said so. If you think that doesn't deserve a tagging, then fine. I guess we're not still friends after all. The three looked at each other. Tony sighed. All right, fine, he said. We're with you, man. We're still your friends since way back. They climbed off their bikes and over the hedge. Putting a finger over the mouth of his mask, Marco gestured for them to follow and led them around back. It was quiet in the yard. October chill filtered through the trees. Marco knelt beside the back door, unzipping the duffel bag. Through the rear window, they caught a glimpse of Ryland, sleeping in front of the TV down the hall. Marco stood. The other three felt the bottoms fall out of their stomachs. There weren't any more spray cans in the duffel bag. It was filled with crowbars. Come on, said Marco, kicking the bag toward them. Unless you're soft. He stared them down. For a moment, each of them wondered who it was that looked at them from behind that mask. The boy they'd known as a child? Everything had changed so fast. Not daring to look at one another, the other three knelt, standing again with downcast faces and crowbars in their trembling hands. That's more like it, said Marco. He hefted an iron bar and smashed the lock. The door sagged open, letting them in with the October wind. It was nearly four in the morning and a grey, syrupy fluid was cascading down the walls at the party venue. Katie leaned forward, away from the wall, laughing in disbelief as Melissa wiped the grey substance from the back of her costume. Oh, weird! It smells like pomegranates, said Melissa, shouting over the bizarre, atonal music. Katie just nodded. She was exhausted. They had been hopping from party to party all night. Through the haze in her brain, she recalled that their group had started out larger than just her, Melissa, and Tom, but that slowly these people had fallen away to be replaced by the unknown demons, skeletons, and reapers. Strange friends of friends of friends that were now grinding and fondling each other just a few meters away. The parties, too, had gotten stranger. Katie remembered starting at that random dorms floor party, then moved to a kegger at a frat house Katie had never heard of, then a bar basement downtown that had a dirt floor, 
than a warehouse that had actual dead cows hanging from the seventy-foot ceilings. And those were just the standouts. The rest had dissolved into Katie's mind like a sugar cube and absinthe. Katie, are you seeing this? laughed Melissa, gesturing with her drink and spilling a bit on the black concrete floor. On the dance floor, a plague doctor was filleting a full-sized deer antler that jutted from a devil's codpiece. Yeah, holy shit, said Katie. Take a picture to show Tom. An unseen fog machine started pouring thick mist at the far end of the room. Katie sipped her drink, a milky white alcohol that tasted like licorice and sweat, but not in an unpleasant way, and scanned the crowd, trying to spot Thomas's half-nude He-Man costume amongst the throbbing bodies. Thomas and Melissa had been together since the start of second year, but the guy still loved being sexy on Halloween. Katie knew that he worked out every day of October in preparation. "'I don't see Tom anywhere,' said Katie. "'What?' replied Melissa. "'Tom, do you know where he went?' "'Who's Tom?' Katie laughed at that. "'Tom, your boyfriend, Tom.' Melissa stared at her blankly. "'Who?' And suddenly, Katie couldn't remember who, either. Tom's name, face, and personality had slid out of her memory. Never mind, said Katie, but her neck hairs were standing on end. The cold fog had reached her ankles, and it was getting noticeably thicker. Come on, Melissa, I think we should head out. Just a sec, said Melissa. No, now, come on, said Katie. One more drink, last one said Melissa, and before Katie could stop her, she stood and disappeared into the nearest throng of dancers. Katie pushed after her, going in the direction of the bar, but when she emerged, Melissa was nowhere in sight. The bar itself was a massive piece of driftwood encased in glass. It housed thousands of fat red ants and fat black ants, which massacred each other for the amusement of people waiting for their drinks. Katie grimaced. She approached one of the identical Harlequin bartenders. Have you seen... She started, but then Melissa's description fled her tongue. The bartender stared at her through their mask. I'm looking for... What's her name? Never mind, can I have another drink? Katie cupped her hands around the glass and hustled over to the oozing wall. An ember of panic smoldered in her chest. She circled the room. No one she recognized but more alarming. No exits. She sidled over to where two people were aggressively groping each other. As she watched, they pressed against the wall and the opaque fluid coated them, making it impossible to tell where one ended and the other began. Embarrassed for staring, Katie opened her phone to order an Uber, but her shaking finger slipped and turned on the front-facing camera. And who was that person on the screen? The one looking back at her, who blinked when she blinked and breathed when she breathed. She seemed familiar, but she couldn't place her. The unknown woman put her phone away and looked back toward the party. Two people dressed as toad-green incubi detached themselves from the pulsing mass and came toward her, grasped her hands gently, and pulled her into the night. Well... It's just past eight. Mr. Hannigan will probably be coming by with his nephew any minute now. It's so nice of his sister to let him take that boy out trick-or-treating. 
Where did he say she lived again? Right. Awfully far away. It's a long drive just to drop him off for one night. But it's very kind of her. He's a lonely man, staying inside most of the year, tucked away with his pets and his dusty books. It's only ever around this time that he opens up. You've seen the way he's decorated his house in the past, right? Jack-o'-lanterns and cobwebs, spiders and bats, skeletons and witches, nothing is ever missed. That man just loves Halloween. I asked him about it once, back before Hannah was old enough to go out on her own, and his face just lit up as he talked about it. It's his absolute favorite holiday, he told me, ever since he was a child himself. Everything about it. All things macabre, occult, and strange. He only wished, he said, that he had someone of his own to take out trick-or-treating. Someone who he could share his favorite day with, with the hope that they'd love it just as much. Like I said, he's a lonely man. From what I can tell, he's never had much luck with romance in his life. Not much family, either. Honestly, I didn't think it was ever going to happen. But then, two years ago, the neighborhood met Mr. Hannigan's nephew. I was shocked when I answered the door. There they were, the two of them, Mr. Hannigan beaming, and the small boy in his incredible little costume. I expressed my surprise to Mr. Hannigan, and he went on to explain about his sister who lived far away, and her young son, and all of that. But as he did, I just couldn't help but stare at the child. You've seen the costume, right? It's unlike anything I've ever seen. It's, uh, a devil? Is that what you call it? A little demon kind of thing. Yes, an imp. But anyway, it's amazing. So realistic. I think it's made out of rubber. It must be with how shiny and slimy looking that blue skin and the little wings are. And goodness, the mouth. You'd think he could just reach out and actually bite your finger off with those little teeth. It makes sense. Mr. Hannigan must have gone all out with purchasing a costume. Or who knows, maybe he made it himself? I'm sure there are all kinds of things we don't know about the man. Quiet boy, though. I don't think I've ever heard him say a word. But yes, they trick-or-treated in our neighborhood that Halloween and the one after that. Hmm. No, I'm not really sure how old he is. He was a tiny little thing two years ago. But he must have had a growth spurt right after because... He was at least four feet tall the last year. It's that age, you know. Yes, it should be any minute now. I hope that man is doing all right. It's bad enough that he lives on his own, but with the dog passing away last year, and the cat the year before that, some Halloween cheer will do him good, I hope. Oh, maybe that's them now. Happy Halloween! Oh. Oh my... You've really grown this year, haven't you? Tell me, where's your uncle? The fire was dying down. Midnight had gone, and with it, the autumn. It was now Callan Gaif, the first day of winter. And the wind that funneled through the hills and through their bones was the first wind of winter. Branwen tossed her stone into the edge of the fire, Firelight flickered over her name, written in charcoal on the stone. The others had already placed their stones in the flame. Branwen had been last to go, as she had been last to arrive on the clifftop. Limping up from the cantrev, 
on her new crutches. The name stones were an omen. If anyone's stone went missing by the next morning, that person would die in the coming year. But people didn't take the stones too seriously. The real fear on Kalangayev was high and dew, the black sow. They could hear her snuffling now around the edge of the firelight, waiting for the flames to die down. Those who looked away from the fire for long enough could see her lurching through the shadows, a great wall-eyed hog whose blue-handed rider was the headless figure of an old woman. High and dew. She came every year to visit one of the towns in these hills, and every year, one person who was too slow getting home would be taken by her, back to the other world. Well, said Rhiannon, it seems that High and Dew has chosen our village this year. Everyone else nodded. A few sent glances in Branwen's direction. She looked down, her face black with anger. It wasn't fair. Her, a spinster with a crippled leg, now to be left behind for the High and Dew, just when Rhiannon was newly married and glowing with pregnancy. That's right, she said, spitting. Once the fire dies, that's all for Branwen, and then you can all forget about her and get on with your lives. Nobody said anything. They all looked away. The fire sank lower. The snuffling of High and Dew sounded closer. Branwen, said Rhiannon softly, if there was anything we could do, Branwen spat. Well, there isn't. And if there was, you would all wish there wasn't. You're all glad to be rid of Branwen. She saw the truth of it reflected in their eyes, and it filled her with a spiteful joy. It's not true, said Rhiannon. But Branwen felt her death snuffling nearby and had no time for comfort. Try to console me, will you, Rhiannon? She said. You who stole the man I loved and took the life that was meant for me. Rhiannon's mouth hung open. And then her flush of surprise deepened to a flush of anger. Stole your life, did I, she said. And what choices did I make that took anything from you? I'm not the one who made you fall from that horse you tried to steal. You did that to yourself. I'm not the one who let your crops die. Or drove away your husband. You did these things to yourself, Branwen. Ah, said Branwen, as the wind picked up and as the fire sank to its lowest ebb. Now we get into what you really feel about me. So be it. The fire's about to die. When it goes, the high and dew will rush in and take whoever is the last to run. I know it will be me. I'm only glad that I'll die knowing what you really thought. Think what you want, Branwen, said Rhiannon, rising to her feet as the wind beat the fire low and blue, and good luck. A final gust barreled down from the mountains. The fire died. The townsfolk screamed and ran as the squeal of the high and dew broke through the night, and Branwen was left sitting alone by the fire. Slowly, she used her crutches to push to her feet. She heard something behind her as she stepped around the embers. Something like the tread of a cloven hoof. 
and something like the rustle of the wind through the dried-out crepe of an old woman's skin. She crouched on the other side of the embers, though it made her leg groan in agony to do so. On the other side of the dead fire, lit up blue by the faint glow, she saw them. The enormous black sow with its crushing teeth, and on her shoulders the slight, eerie figure of the dead woman. Curious why I'm not running? said Branwen. The sow tilted its head, and Branwen thrust her hand into the embers, screaming as her flesh smoked and cooked. Dragging back her hand, she arose and flung the stone down from the cliff. On the rocks below, it shattered. Shards with bits of Rhiannon's name written on them spun into the darkness. There, she said, turning back to the high and dew. A low, cold laughter flowed through the blowing wind of Kalangayef. It seemed to emanate both from the lips of the white-eyed hog and from the empty hole of the dead woman's neck. With that, it was gone, galloping down the path towards the cantrev, following the pregnant woman's scent. Branwen lowered herself to sit by the embers. In their dim glow, she examined the cracked, scorched and bleeding ruin of her hand. It hurt tremendously. Tell me again what I've done to myself, Rhiannon, she murmured. Emily stood on the corner holding her little brother's hand. She looked down the street, where their house blinked happily with porch lights and jack-o'-lanterns. Emily wanted to go back, but her brother was being a pain, as usual. One more street! One more! said Mikey, yelling and waving his cowboy pistol in the air. He was pointing to a dark side street that stretched off in the opposite direction of their house. No, dummy, said Emily, immediately upset at herself for calling Mikey a name. Houses with the lights out don't give candy. But Mikey didn't care. He sat on the sidewalk and refused to move. A few years ago, Emily could have just picked him up and walked home. But that wasn't an option anymore. They had already been out trick-or-treating for longer than they were supposed to, and Emily was worried. Less about being grounded than that she wouldn't be allowed to trick-or-treat by herself again. But, if Mikey refused to get up, they'd be here all night. Fine. We'll try three houses. If nobody answers, then we go straight home. Deal? Deal. Mikey hopped to his feet, and Emily had to grab his fake suede vest to stop him from running into the street. The first two houses were dead as the night, and Emily congratulated herself on her compromise, something that her parents told her she needed to do more. But at the third house, an old woman appeared at the doorway. She wore ragged gray bedclothes and stared at them with her one eye for a long while before opening the screen. She reached to an unseen shelf behind the door, and when her hand reappeared, it held two black walnuts. When she dropped one into Emily's bag, Emily saw that her hand was made of polished oak. After that, Emily told Mikey they were going home. No more compromises. That really got Mikey going. But Emily was through compromising, and when they returned to the sidewalk, Emily started marching Mikey back the way they came. Except, where's our house? said Mikey. 
The street now stretched endlessly into the distance with no side streets or intersections breaking the row of homes, all with their lights out. Their house and the familiar block it sat on were gone. Emily started to panic then, and Mikey could tell. He'd stopped crying and his tear and snot-stained face reflected patches of moonlight as he stared up at her in alarm. Emily tried to think of a plan, but it was as if her thoughts were frozen in ice. That's when someone tapped Emily on her shoulder. Emily nearly fell over. She hadn't heard anyone approaching. Hello, said Mikey, looking over her shoulder. Emily spun around. An older boy was standing behind her. He was tall. Emily only came up to his shoulder and he wore jeans and a t-shirt. Like other older kids, he didn't put much work into his costume. All he had was a dark green pillowcase over his head. He hadn't even cut eye holes or a mouth hole. It was weird. Who are you? said Emily. The tall child did not respond. Hello? My brother and I are lost. Still nothing. Maybe he's shy, thought Emily. He's not trick-or-treating either. In a flash, Emily had a plan. She turned back to Mikey, who was still staring happily at the tall child. We're going to knock on every door, Mikey, she said. We're going to trick-or-treat at every house on this street, and while we do it, we're going to ask every person who comes to the door if they know the way to our house on Belcourt Road. Mikey nodded. They started walking, and the tall child walked with them. Emily was about to tell him to scram, but then Mikey started swinging back and forth as they walked, each of his hands clasped in one of theirs. In the tall child's presence, Mikey was more relaxed, and Emily, though older and more wary, began to feel better as well. It was good to have a big kid around. The next few houses were empty, and Emily's stomach turned with each unanswered knock. The seventh house was answered by an ancient man whose beard trailed between his legs. He looked at Emily and Mikey sternly, and silently refused to answer their questions. Every so often, he would stare at the tall child, furrowing his brow until his eyebrows nearly touched. Before they left, he placed a piece of moldy bread in each of their candy bags. After he closed the door, Emily threw the bread away. The next four houses were empty as well. But, at the twelfth house, they spoke to a young, smiling woman. Emily explained what had happened, how they had gotten lost, where they lived, and the young woman smiled and nodded, nodded and smiled. When Emily finished her explanation, the woman smiled even more broadly and opened her mouth to reveal that she had no tongue. She handed them two sealed jars, each containing an earwig, and sent them on their way. As they walked, Mikey chattered on endlessly, asking questions to the tall child, none of which he answered. In spite of that, Emily was sure he was listening carefully. His pillowcase-covered head was tilted down, and he walked with a slight hunch so not a single word of Mikey's monologue would be lost on the breeze. But the tall child did not take much notice of her. The 23rd house had placed a stone bowl on the porch with a sign that read, Please take one. When Mikey went to look inside, he fell backward in shock and skinned his knee. The bowl was filled with dead sparrows. Emily had moved to help Mikey up, but the tall child beat her to it. Tenderly, he lifted Mikey to his feet and guided him back down the walkway to the sidewalk, an earthy smell wafting into Emily's nose as he passed by. She noticed that his fingernails were crusted with fresh black dirt. Forty houses. Seventy-four houses. 
118 houses. Emily tried to keep count, but kept losing track. The street stretched on and on into the distance. Emily didn't have a watch, and none of the strange, silent grown-ups who answered their doors would tell her what time it was. Around house 300, where a woman wearing a black veil gifted them a handful of snail shells, the air seemed to change. Where it once felt moist and heavy and full of odd animal odors, it now carried smells she recognized. Compost, gasoline, even the acrid touch of pesticide. And even though they hadn't changed, the houses suddenly looked different too. As she had been doing all night, Emily looked down the street to see where it ended. But this time, just at the edge of her vision, she saw a wavering yellow light. It was a house. A house at the end of the street had its lights on. Mikey saw it too. Emily grabbed his hand and the tall child grabbed his other one and before they knew it, the three of them were running down the sidewalk, their footsteps echoing off the night sky. About halfway there, Mikey tripped. Emily pulled him to his feet, focused solely on that faraway house as it would disappear if she looked away. Once Mikey was standing, she tried to run again, but Mikey stopped her. I dropped my gun, he said. Really? said Emily. Oh, wait, he's got it, said Mikey, as the tall child handed him the plastic cap gun without a word. Thank you. Okay, ready. But Emily didn't hear. She had dropped Mikey's hand and was already sprinting again. She reached the house first and started hammering on the doorbell. She heard shuffling footsteps in the hallway. And then, in the alcove. The door opened. Emily! Thank goodness, where have you been, said Emily's mother. Emily had been so desperate to escape the darkened street, she hadn't noticed that the doorbell she'd been ringing was her own. Emily ran forward, burying her face in her mother's stomach. Inside, she could smell dinner. Chicken, rice, peas. I'm glad you're home too, said Emily's mother. Now, where's Mikey? Emily spun around and looked past the empty porch, down the empty walkway, and into the vast empty night. Mikey was nowhere to be seen. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. This week's episode, Snip or Treat, an analecticum of Halloween shorts, was written by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, and featured in order of appearance, Anthony Botello, Rachel Hart, Jacob Duarte Spiel, Alexander Saxton, Hugh Ritchie, Liz Durr, Chris Vergara, Margaret Rose, and Jada Rifkin. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.